Beloved, let's put into practice what we just confessed in song. How do we rest in God and abide in him? How do we do that until our trials and suffering give way to final victory? Well, listen to scripture's answer to that question. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. What does that mean? It means that we must trust and obey the apostolic word which bears witness to the person and work of Christ. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Friends, our abiding, our fellowship with God is through the hearing of his spirit-inspired word. So let me now invite you to abide in the words of eternal life as you hear the word preached. So please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we think about how the future resurrection of believers from the dead helps us live our Christian lives in the present. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 29 to 34. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now enlighten our minds by your spirit so that we may see the glory and the goodness of Christ. Teach us to think wisely and live faithfully in light of the coming kingdom. And may the power of our risen Savior anchor us in hope, strengthen our faith, and cause us to labor in love. May we do it all for the glory of God, knowing that our Savior reigns over all and that he will return for his own. In his name we pray. Amen. Friends, all ideas have consequences. All ideas have consequences. Some of them turn out to be good, and some of them turn out to be bad. But all ideas have consequences. What we think and what we believe will, will affect our emotions, our attitudes, and our actions. The prodigal son, for example, uh, thought that it would be a good idea to spend his share of the inheritance money on parties and prostitutes. That was his idea of a good life. He squandered all that he had on reckless living until he was penniless, friendless, and starving. And we know because of God's word, God who defines for us what good and what bad is, we know by judging that idea by the standard of God's word that that was a very bad idea. But then after he hit rock bottom, this young man had another thought. He remembered something good and true about his father. And that knowledge brought him to his senses and he began to think rightly about his predicament. So Luke 15, 17 says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Beloved, your thoughts and beliefs will affect how you live. 
And I'm not just talking about the beliefs you confess before people. I'm speaking even of the ones that are deeply ingrained in you and perhaps are different from the beliefs you confess. I'm talking about your hidden priorities, your preferred cultural values. I'm saying that those will show themselves in how you think and live. And when that happens, that inconsistency, that difference between what you say you believe and what you actually believe will be plain to all. Think of the man who says, oh, I'm against all violence for all reason. But then when you call him a liar, he punches you in the face. And as you walk away with a bloody nose, you'll probably be thinking, I don't think he actually believes in nonviolence. That's probably something he just says to feel good about himself and impress others. At other times, if our beliefs are not true, then our actions become pointless. Imagine if I said to you, what do you people mean by cooking all this food for the members meeting if there's no members meeting? Your actions are inconsistent with reality. They are pointless. It's foolish to cook all this food if there's no members meeting. By the way, there is a members meeting. <laughs> now, Paul's great concern for the Corinthians in this chapter is that they think rightly about the resurrection of believers from the dead. He was concerned that some of them had the wrong ideas about the resurrection of believers. And those ideas were, uh, were not only producing inconsistent ways of thinking, but they were also affecting the way they lived. And so in the first 11 verses of chapter 15, Paul helps them see the connection between Jesus' resurrection and their own. He says, if you believe the gospel and Jesus' resurrection is crucial to the gospel, then the resurrection of believers is the necessary implication of his resurrection. That's how you should think, he says. One follows from the other. And then in verses 12 to 19, he lays out five implications or consequences of denying the resurrection of believers. In verses 20 to 28, he reminds them of the glorious results of Jesus' resurrection that lead to our own. Because Christ has risen from the dead, we receive eternal life. Because Christ has risen from the dead, Jesus will destroy his enemies. The last enemy being death itself. And because Christ has risen from the dead, he will usher in the fullness of his kingdom and God will be glorified through it all. Our resurrection from the dead is tied to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And in our passage today, verses 29 to 34, Paul demonstrates that if you get rid of the idea of the resurrection of believers, if you deny it, then not only do we throw hope out the window and become the most pitiable people on the planet, but our lives in the present become meaningless. It becomes meaningless and immoral. You see, you cannot adopt cultural ideas, which is what the Corinthians were doing, and then merge them with biblical truth without causing some kind of disorder. Not only will you have disordered thinking, but also disordered living. Ideas have consequences. And so in order to help the Corinthians flee from the philosophical ideas 
of their culture and come back to their senses, Paul asks them a series of thought-provoking questions. He addresses their minds and the first question he asks has to do with their practice. And he says, if you claim one thing, that is, there is no resurrection from the dead, then what's the point of this practice? What's the point? And so as we look at this passage, we'll see that the doctrine of the resurrection of believers from the dead matters. It matters for, number one, it matters for baptism. Number two, it matters for suffering. And number three, it matters for righteous living. So those are the three points of the sermon this morning. The doctrine of the resurrection of believers from the dead matters for baptism, for suffering, and righteous living. So how should we think about baptism and the hope of our resurrection? Well, look at verse 29. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Notice that this sentence, this verse begins with the word otherwise. Paul looks back on all the arguments uh, that he has made linking the believer's resurrection to Jesus' resurrection, uh, which they said they believed. Uh, they didn't have any problem. Remember, they didn't have any problem with Jesus' resurrection. What some of them were denying was the resurrection of believers. And Paul says, this is what Jesus' resurrection entails. It means for you. But if you deny that otherwise, your, your practice of baptism is pointless. It's foolish. What do you mean by doing this? He says, that's like saying, that's like saying if you don't believe that Jesus' death was a sacrifice of atonement, that his death purchased the forgiveness of your sins, that in him and because of him all your sins have been atoned for, that you have been washed clean, that you stand justified before a holy God. If you don't believe any of that, why are you wasting your time confessing your sins every Sunday? What's the point of this stupid exercise if none of that is true? Can you see how foolish it would be if none of that was true? Friends, on what basis do you think God is going to forgive you? Because of your sad faces? Or your tears? Or your quivering voice? Oh no, brothers and sisters, no humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. That's why we confess our sins to God. 1 John 1.19 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Imagine that, all unrighteousness. The text says he is just to do so. He is right to do so. Why? Because Jesus 
paid it all. Because Jesus paid it all, it is right for God to forgive us. Because he paid it all then, he forgives us today and he will forgive us tomorrow when we come to him in genuine repentance and faith. You see, our practice, what we do, our practice is reflective of what we really believe. But sometimes our practice is, is not reflective of what we believe. Our practice doesn't line up with what we say we believe. And that's because we're secretly impressed with other things. Sometimes our practice doesn't line up with what we say we believe because we're secretly, because we're secretly impressed with other things. You know, I, I have some Christian friends who say, oh, I love the local church. The local church is so important. We should be members of the local church. And when I look at their lives, they really don't have much time for the local church. They live their lives as though being an ordinary member of the body is not exciting and not worthwhile ministry. You see, their practice betrays their belief. Their practice betrays their belief. You see, Paul is pointing out the inconsistency of these members who were denying the resurrection of believers. He points to their practice of baptism as being inconsistent with their belief of no resurrection. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead, he says? If the dead are not raised, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Or as some versions say, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead don't rise at all? What's the point? Now in the history of the church, there have been some 40 different interpretations of this verse. Uh, many of them speculative. And I have to admit that this is a difficult verse. Uh, just, just look at it. People were being baptized on behalf of the dead. It sounds like some weird voodoo ritual. Now, I won't get into all the interpretations, but we'll consider a few. The first is the most obvious one. If you take the word on their behalf to mean in their place, well, then this interpretation uh, would read something like this, that some believers at the church in Corinth had died and they had died before getting baptized. And so the church then identified some living people and baptized them on their behalf, a sort of vicarious baptism, a proxy baptism. Now, could it be that this ritual was unique to the Corinthian church? Had they borrowed some sort of strange cultural practice and integrated it into their uh, Christianity, into their practice of Christian baptism? That's, that's possible, that's a plausible explanation. But if that's the case, then we must also say that Paul is only mentioning it here to make a point. He's not endorsing this practice. We have to say that because we know what Paul clearly teaches about baptism uh, from other texts. The weakness of this interpretation is that we have no historical evidence of such a practice, an equivalent practice in either early church history or in the surrounding pagan culture. 
Plus, we know that Paul had plenty to say, if you remember 1 Corinthians 11, Paul had plenty to say when the Corinthians were abusing the Lord's Supper. Wouldn't it be reasonable to expect him to say something if they were also abusing baptism? Now, if we take a closer look, the Greek word that is translated as behalf, hooper, could also be translated as for, for the dead, or for the sake of the dead, or because of the dead, or on account of the dead. Well, in that case, this then allows us to see baptism as not some sort of weird ritual, but simply the normal practice of Christian baptism. It's the normal understanding of Christian baptism, which then leads us to a different set of interpretations. Interpretation number two. Some people had come to faith through the witness of people who had been martyred or died. And so these new believers were being baptized on account of their witness because of the dead. Interpretation number three. Martin Luther translated the Greek word, hooper, differently. That word that is translated as on behalf of, he translated it as above. And he took it to understand that believers, that there were some believers who were being baptized over, literally over the graves of their dead relatives who would one day rise. It's a bit creepy, but that was his interpretation. And they did it in hope to be reunited with their loved ones. Interpretation number four. Uh, these were Christians who were on their deathbeds, about to die, and they were being baptized. So the dead means almost dead. These were people who were dying, their own dead bo dying bodies. Now, I'm inclined to believe, because of the context, that this refers to normal Christian baptism. And some people were getting baptized because they had come to faith, through the witness of believers who were now dead. They were being baptized because of the dead. So let me give you five reasons why I think, why I think that. Number one, as I said before, the, the proxy baptism view is so weird. It's, it's strange that Paul doesn't say anything about it. Remember, baptism is an act of obedience on the part of the believer to identify with Christ and his people. It's symbolic of one's union with Christ. When a believer immerses himself in water, uh, he or she is enacting their union with Christ. Uh, this person is saying that just as Christ died, I too have died with him to my old self. As he goes under the water, he's saying by his actions, I have died, I have been buried with Christ. And when he comes out of the water, he's saying that just as Christ rose to newness of life, I too have been made alive. I've been born again and one day my body will rise from the dead just as Christ rose from the dead. It's a public confession of one's faith. Beloved, what baptism means is very clear in the New Testament. So we'll look at three passages from the New Testament. First, Romans 6, 3 to 6. If you can turn there quickly, uh, please do that. If not, just listen. Romans 6, 3 to 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, so this is what water baptism depicts, our union with Christ through the Spirit, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 5, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, underline that word, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like the his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Colossians 2 verses 11 to 12. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That's a reference to the new birth. By putting off the body of the flesh, the, the sinful nature, how was that accomplished? By the circumcision of Christ. That's a reference to Jesus' death on the cross. He was bloodied. He was cut off. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So clear what baptism means in that verse. 1 Peter 3, 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, corresponds to what? Well, if you look at a few verses above, Peter is saying that baptism is a picture of being saved through water, just as Noah was saved through the waters in the ark. He says, baptism now saves you. Well, in what sense does it save you? Peter explains, it now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, so this is not about you taking a bath. You can do that at home. This is not about washing away your sins, literally. That's not what it means. Baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not a condition for salvation. Baptism does not have sacramental power as though the water is mixed with, with grace and it can actually wash away your sin. No, it's an appeal or an answer of a good conscience toward God. It's the function of a cleansed conscience, a good conscience made good by your new birth, made good by the Spirit to answer God in obedience. So think with me, if the Corinthians had an aberrant view of baptism, it seems likely that Paul would have addressed it. Reason number two. Let's go back to the text. When the text says on behalf of the dead, or better because of the dead, that tells you that the dead had some sort of influence on the people getting baptized. Whichever way you translate that word, there seems to be a connection between the dead and the living. They had an influence. Reason number three. In the context of this chapter, what is Paul focusing on when he talks about the dead? Well, he's talking about the dead in Christ. He's talking about the believing dead. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Reason number four, notice the flow of the argument. He's questioning what they're doing, verse 29, and then he questions himself, specifically his suffering for the sake of the gospel. If there's no resurrection of believers from the dead, then what is the point of what you're doing and what's the point of what I'm doing? I don't think he would quite stated that way, put those things side by side, if they were doing something horribly wrong. Reason number five. Do you remember chapter one? Chapter one, turn to chapter one. 
so many references to baptism in chapter 1. Particularly, you get to see the great importance that these believers ascribe to baptism, but especially to those men who led them to faith. Verse 13 of chapter 1, were you baptized in the name of Paul? 14 and 15, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Verse 16, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You see, the problem was not that they got baptism wrong, but they had a wrong understanding of their leaders, and they were dividing over them based on what their culture taught them was impressive. And so, friends, for these reasons, I think it's likely that when he says that when, when people, that people were being baptized because of the dead or on account of the dead or for the dead, he's referring to those dead believers on account of whom some of these Corinthians had come to saving faith and had subsequently been baptized. See, their baptism pointed to the same resurrection hope that these dead believers had. And Paul says, if some of you, if you deny the resurrection of the believers from the dead, then these baptisms don't make any sense at all. It doesn't make any sense of, at all. Your belief of no resurrection, or rather your denial of bodily resurrection, seems to be inconsistent with what you're doing. One author reflecting on this interpretation writes this. He says, it ought to be remembered that many today come to faith in Christ on the basis of the testimony or influence of those that have since died. For one, it might be on account of the influence of a Charles Spurgeon or through the prose of a John Bunyan. For another, it might be the loss of a neighbor or relative whose testimony to Christ held firm in the midst of a battle with cancer. In thinking about this, is it too hard to imagine a similar situation in the first century where oaks of righteousness like the likes of Stephen and James breathed their last on account of their service to God? Does it not say of Abel in Hebrews 11.4 that through his faith, though he died, he still speaks? Now, while this might be a hard text to interpret, I hope you can see that irrespective of what you think this text means, Paul's point is clear. If you deny the resurrection of believers from the dead, then what you're doing makes no sense. Because what you're doing points to the truth that believers will rise from the dead. Beloved, let me ask you this. Is your thinking and are your actions consistent or inconsistent with the fact that Christians will rise from the dead and will reign with Christ forever in the new heavens and the new earth. You know, this morning you sang, I heard you sing, as day unfolds, I seek your will in all of life's demands. And though the tempter tries me still, I cling to your commands. Let every effort of my life display the matchless worth of Christ. Make me a living sacrifice. Be glorified today. I heard you sing that. I saw you sing. I saw your practice. Is it consistent with what you actually believe? Or do you really believe something else? 
that when the tempter tries you, you will do what is least painful and display the matchless worth of your comfort. You see, if you deny the resurrection of believers from the dead, then Christian baptism becomes meaningless. Friends, I wonder if you reflect on your baptism very often. Have you locked up that memory in a dusty old cupboard of your mind? Or does it have any relevance for your day-to-day -day Christian lives? See, baptism is not merely something you did, but that gracious ordinance is meant for us to remember the gospel. In that ordinance, a promise is proclaimed. You heard that in Romans 6. When we witness baptisms, we are reminded that just as he rose, we too will certainly rise. We ought to remember his power that we were dead. We were once dead, but now he has made us alive. We ought to remember that the spirit who made us alive now dwells in us and he enables us to walk in newness of life. We ought to remember that because of what Jesus did, we are no longer slaves to sin. And so we must not live as though we are. It ought to remind us that our sins have been forgiven. Baptism ought to remind us that we are united to Christ, that we are members of his body, that we share communion with him and one another. We have come to know God as his children. Beloved, don't neglect your baptism. Meditate on it often. Paul says if you deny the resurrection of believers from the dead, then Christian baptism becomes meaningless. If you deny the resurrection from the dead, then Christian suffering also becomes meaningless. Which brings us to our second point. The doctrine of the resurrection of believers matters for suffering. Here's the second question he asks. And this time, it's about his own life and the life of the apostles. Look at verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Paul says if we accept the premise that believers will not be raised from the dead when Jesus returns, then why do we apostles go through all this trouble? If death is going to have the final word, what's the point? Why do we put our lives at risk every hour? Namely, all the time, he says. Every day we hold our lives in our hands as we go about evangelizing the lost, evangelizing the lost and discipling believers. You know, Paul gives a catalog of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28. Listen to what he says. He says, I have had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, 
in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. See, Paul's hope, what sustains this man in the midst of all these hardships is the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. The very idea that a Christian would deny this is mind-boggling to him. And so he emphatically protests. Look at, the, look at verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul is saying, when I look at you, I feel proud. He's not talking about sinful pride. He says, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. What he means by that is that these Corinthians are very dear to him. They are his joy. When he looks at them, he boasts in all that Christ has accomplished in them through his ministry. And he wants them to know that that ministry involves great hardships. I want you to understand, says Paul, that I die daily. You know, here he's not talking about dying to sin, though the Bible does talk about that. But here he's talking about the dangers and, and risks of Christian ministry. On a daily basis, he says, I face the reality of death. But I'm not driven by, I'm not motivated by the ambitions of the world. Look at verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, when he says, humanly speaking, he means for human reasons. If this entire apostolic enterprise was built on making the world a better place, if every risk I took was in order to pursue hopes and goals that were limited to this world alone, then I gain nothing. What do I gain? I fought with beasts in Ephesus. Paul does not mean that he wrestled with real animals. No, he's referring to his enemies, his opposers. You see, in the Old Testament, those who oppose God's people are often described as beasts. Both Peter and Jude in the New Testament describe false teachers as irrational animals. Paul had many adversaries at Ephesus, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, we are given a, a little insight as to how he felt about that experience. Listen to this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. This is the Apostle Paul. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, he says. But then notice how Paul brings an eternal perspective to bear on his desperate situation. He writes, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, that's how Paul applied the doctrine of the resurrection of believers from the dead to his desperate situation. He says all of that happened. God ordained all of that so that we would rely less on ourselves, less on our friends, less on our situation, 
and on God who raises the dead. So moms, if you feel your children are sucking the life out of you, remember that God raises his people from the dead. If you find that ministry is hard and one day you might lose your life doing it or lose your health doing it, doing it remember that God raises the dead. You know, Paul is saying here what he has already said in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If all we have are earthly ambitions, if our minds are set on, 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 on the earth, this earth, if we as Christians do not have the hope of the resurrection, then our labors, our hardships, our gospel ministry to one another that involves agonizing struggle against the world and the flesh and the devil, all of that becomes meaningless. Paul says this, look at the text, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If death has the last word, why waste our lives in pain and sorrow and hard labor? Why not do what the prodigal son did? If this life is all we get, then let's party like there's no tomorrow. As one author rightly put it, he said it's, it's either Christ or cocaine. You know, Paul quotes Isaiah 22, 13 here. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now in that passage, Isaiah prophesies judgment for the people of Israel. God threatened to send the Assyrians to attack and subdue Israel. Israel was told to repent of their sins in light of the coming discipline. But instead of doing that, this is how they responded. They said, oh great, we're going to be attacked. And then we're going to die. So let's party. Let's kill some oxen, cook some steak and drink till we drop. If all we do is for gain in this world alone, we are of all people the most to be pitied. Beloved, the, the scriptures tell us that this world and everything in it is passing away. Now, friend, if you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. Perhaps you have a Christian heritage and you really can't make sense of the Christian faith. Maybe you came here because a friend brought you here or a loved one called you. We're glad that you're here. If you hate Christianity, we're glad that you're here. But I want to ask you this. Where is your ultimate hope? Where is your ultimate hope? Where do you find meaning? What's the purpose of your life? Everything that you pursue in this life, whether that is for pleasure or success or family or fortune, death is going to swallow it all. It's going to swallow it all. Have you ever wondered, is that all there is to life? But friend, I want to tell you that there is more. Scripture tells us that there is more. Scripture tells us that God created us with meaning and purpose, but we have gone astray. Instead of pursuing God, our creator, and his glory, and his purposes, we have chased after created things. We have chased after our own glory. And we have sought to make a name for ourselves. And the Bible calls that sin. 
And for that great, for that great act of treason, we stand in eternally condemned before a holy God for our foolishness. But the good news is that you don't have to live a meaningless life. You don't have to live a meaningless life and die and stand before God on the day of judgment only to be condemned. You see, this God in his grace and love sent his son to live the life that we could have never lived. And then he died in the place of sinners on the cross. He took your judgment and my judgment on himself, the judgment that we deserved. And he did that so that whoever repents of their sins and puts their trust in him may not perish, but receive the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. Friends, in Christ, all of life is meaningful and it's beautiful and death will not have the last word if you are in Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. He rose from the dead with a new resurrection body and he promises that all those who trust in him will receive the same. So you don't have to go through life without hope. There is eternal life beyond the grave in Christ Jesus. Your life can be filled with hope. And if you're in Christ, though you die, yet you will live because he's coming back and will raise from the dead all those who trust in him. So confess your sins today to God. Call on the name of Jesus. Turn away from your sin, your agenda, and submit to him in humility and trust. Believe in your heart that he alone is Lord and God, that he rose from the dead and that true hope is found in him alone. Come to Christ and you will be saved. You will receive the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. This is the hope that, that, that Christians have that enables us to face suffering with joy. You see, faith in what Christ has done for us enables us to have a sure hope in what he will do for us in the future. And because our future is secure, this enables us to freely and joyfully love him and obey him even in the midst of trials and suffering and even serve our brothers and sisters in the church. Though we may suffer in this life because of living in a world affected by the consequences of our sin, sometimes our own sin, sometimes because of the sins of others, even though that happens, we can know that God is working every one of those hardships to draw us closer to himself, to make us more like his son, to impress on our hearts the greatness of his power and to remind us that one day sin and grief and pain will be no more. He will raise us from the dead and we will enter into a glorious existence where we will not only receive the reward of a life lived to the glory of Christ, but also a joyous life, a satisfying life in the presence of God and his children. To believe anything else is deception, says Paul. To believe anything else is to live a life of deception. And so Paul warns the Corinthians who were buying into this lie that there was no resurrection of believers. Although their baptismal practices may have been inconsistent with what they believed, their lives were not. Their lives were not. It was pretty consistent with what they believed, with their denial. As, as one author similarly noted, resurrection means endless hope, but no resurrection means a hopeless end. And a hopelessness feeds self-gratification. Which brings us to our third and final point. The doctrine of the resurrection of believers matters for righteous living. Look at verse 33. 
Do not be deceived, says Paul. Bad company ruins good morals. You know, Paul says to the church at Corinth, uh, don't buy into this false teaching that some are believing. And he warns them by quoting the Greek uh, dramatist Menander. Menander said, bad company corrupts good morals. In other words, he's saying if you buy into what these people are saying, that the resurrection of the body is not true, that it won't ha happen. And they're saying this because they were influenced by the cultural ideas of their time. Paul is saying if you hang around with folks who think like this, not only is that thinking confusing and inaccurate, but it will lead you into sin. Ideas have consequences. And by quoting one of their own, he's saying your own culture condemns you. Bad company corrupts. It perverts your ideals, your manners, your character, your ethics, your conduct. Call it what you may. We all know this intuitively. We've heard it from our parents growing up, haven't we? Don't run with the wrong crowd. Proverbs 13, 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or take 1 Corinthians 5, verse 26. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see, this is true not only of sinful actions, but also of sinful thinking. Cultural thinking, it spreads like leaven and corrupts because you're sowing to the flesh and not to the spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should withdraw from the world or not engage with culture. I'm saying we must be discerning. We ought to be mature in our thinking. We ought to be skilled in using the word of God to discern what values, what patterns of thinking, what habits and what actions in culture are dishonoring to the word of Christ. Now, this bad company that Paul is warning them were about people in the church. They were in the church and they were thinking culturally. And friends, that ought to give us pause. We should evaluate our own lives as we interact with one another. Brothers and sisters, we have a lot to learn as we grow up together into Christ-likeness. Make sure in your conversations with each other, you are discerning about the things you say. Make sure you are discerning about the counsel you offer. Is it according to Christ or according to culture? Don't swallow cultural values or wisdom just because it's popular or familiar or comfortable or just plain easy. No, open your Bibles and see whether, whether those values are opposed to the cross of Christ whether they're opposed to the wisdom of God in the word. Don't go with the cultural flow. If we have learned anything from the last two years, from the greatest public health disaster in the history of medicine, it is this, that stupidity is contagious. Remember how these Corinthians got into this mess in the first place. They were thinking culturally about Life after death, we're not thinking about it Christianly. They had not brought the gospel to bear on their understanding concerning the resurrection. They had not allowed what Christ had done in his death and resurrection to inform how they should have thought about their own death. And Paul says when Christians think like that, it's like you're drunk. And so he exhorts them to be sober-minded. Look at the next verse, verse 34. 
Wake up from your drunken stupor. Sober up. Come to your senses. As is right. And do not go on sinning. See the reason they must wake up is because it is the right thing to do. But this verse is saying more than that. If faulty thinking is sinful, then what do you wake up to? You wake up to righteousness, don't you? You wake up to right thinking and right living, to thinking that is honoring to the Lord. You exercise self-control over your thoughts and your reason and your logic. And you submit it all to scripture, the infallible word of God. And then you see that the resurrection of believers gives us hope for the future. It is this hope that drives our labors in the present. It is this hope that informs us that our sufferings are not only evidence that we belong to God and that He's taking us from glory, taking us to glory in the same way that He took His Son. But it also tells us that those trials are purposeful. Suffering is purposeful in demonstrating to other Christians the love of Christ at work in us as we deny ourselves for the eternal well-being of others. We must put on the mind of Christ. The Corinthians must do what he has already told them from the very beginning. 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you brothers that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. But Paul has also heard enough information about these persons who were denying the resurrection and the sinful lives that they were leading that he gets to the heart of the problem. Look at the verse. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. See, these people were so deceived by their faulty understanding of the resurrection of believers that it showed. It showed. And the results were shameful. Paul says, the way that these people are behaving tells me that they do not really know God. In other words, he's saying that the problem is not merely an intellectual one. It's not the lack of information even, but a lack of spiritual understanding. And he has already told us, hasn't he? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Friends, if a person is a genuine believer, when he hears sound doctrine which is in accordance with what the scriptures teach, then he will repent of his foolish thinking, either immediately or after wrestling it with it for a season. But in the course of that spiritual course correction, this believer will still have a zeal, a desire to please the Lord in his thinking and living. Sinful behavior will bring him great pain and sorrow and he will desire to learn to repent because he's born again. However, it appears that these people were not behaving in that way. These people who denied the resurrection of the body were living immoral lives because they thought that what you did with the body didn't really matter. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that the body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. You were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, because of the joyful hope 
that we will be raised with new resurrection bodies in the future because we will be clothed with greater dignity and honor with immortality because of that we pursue modesty now. Because of the resurrection of the body, then we flee sexual immorality now. Because our bodies belong to the Lord and will be raised up in purity. We dare not fill our minds with the sewage of lust and pornography, but we flee from it now. That's how that doctrine of the resurrection of believers from the dead informs our righteous living now. Beloved, doctrine matters. It matters to God what you believe. It matters how you think and it matters. Doctrine will affect the way you live. You will either live an honorable life or a shameful one in God's sight. But here's another thing I want to say. If you have any notion that you can be a hypocrite and get away with it, this verse shatters that understanding. If you're thinking, as long as I say Christian things and do Christian things, but in my mind, in my thinking, I can do whatever I want, let my imagination run free, explore every sinful possibility, and no one will know, you're drunk. Brothers and sisters, be sober-minded because your thinking will affect how you live. Your thoughts will inform your desires and your desires will affect your priorities. It will affect your ambitions. It will affect your emotional life. It will affect your actions. If it is not informed by the gospel and the hope of the resurrection, it will descend very quickly into immorality and lovelessness and eventually despair. But because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our hope springs eternal. Amen? We know that because he rose, we know that we too will rise. And that makes all our worship, all our suffering, and all our obedience exceedingly joyful and meaningful. There have been many saints who have died and have gone on before us and are in the presence of Christ awaiting their resurrection. Let's serve our Lord with the same resurrection hope that they had. Let me close with this sweet reminder from Hebrews 6 verses 10 to 12. As you think about all that we do as a church, as you think about your trials and sufferings, as you think about your service to your brothers and sisters, as hard as that may be, Listen to this, Hebrews 6, 10 to 12. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Brothers and sisters, God sees your hard labors. He will not overlook it the love that you have for one another. God sees that. He keeps an account. The Father keeps an account of the trials and the sufferings of His children. 
God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end so that you may not be sluggish but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we confess that our hope is in you alone. In Christ, we have the sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would make us very bold. Make us bold and earnest in our pursuit of righteousness. May we pursue the lost with zeal and patience and love one another well, all the while rejoicing in hope as we await the return of Jesus. May we toil and strive with contentment so that your glory would be made known to the world through your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.